Good afternoon. It's Wednesday, the 14th of September 2022, just after one o'clock. Welcome to UK Column News. Your host today, Mike Robinson, myself, Brian Gerrish. We're delighted to be joined by, <coughs> excuse me, Alex Thompson and our very own Debbie Evans, nursing correspondent. Now we'll get straight on with inflation. And uh, well, good news, Brian. It's down uh, to 9.9%. So that'll make a lot, big difference to everybody's lives. Let's just uh, put the graph from the Office for National Statistics on screen. And you can see how it has fallen in the last month. Uh, as I say, that's going to make a huge amount of difference. Um, so uh, CPS nine point uh, sorry CPI nine point nine percent in the twelve months to August twenty twenty two. The biggest problem here is the the largest contributors to this were was food, uh, and the main reason that there's been a sort of blip in the road there uh, from the generally upward trend is because we've seen falling uh, oil prices uh, in the last month, and that has. Uh, taken a little bit of the pressure off uh, as far as uh, transport costs are concerned, but it's mainly food. So this is the, f the highest uh, prices of food for the highest inflation in prices for food for 14 years. Uh, and of course, because that's a staple, that is uh, pretty horrendous for people. I was just going to say, Mike, the graph, of course, shows when all the trouble occurred without any doubt, doesn't it? So you're looking back into 2020 there and the problems start. Well, indeed. And uh, if, you know, if we consider uh, the impact of the amount of money printing that went on around uh, COVID uh, policy and so yeah. on uh, and the, the uh, furlough schemes, um, the estimates are that the amount of money printing that's going to be needed for, uh, for this uh, energy uh, solution that Liz Trust has devised is going to be more. Um, so, Alex, let's uh, let's come on to you then. Um, and uh, well, some news on the issue of energy uh, in Britain. We have a write-in, Mike, from somebody who describes themselves as working for a small-time energy broker and who would like to stay confidential. And uh, let's have a look at what this uh, viewer said. Ring that up on screen. I work for a small-time energy broker, and I have some insight into the energy suppliers and the demise of the hospitality industry. I would like to share a screenshot, we'll show you that in a moment, to demonstrate how every energy supplier has literally demanded not to take any business or contract from anyone in the hospitality industry for some reason. I need to remain anonymous as this information comes from my aggregator provider, who we use as an energy broker. I feel that it needs to be investigated why all or at least 90% of all energy suppliers simply do not and will not take on any business with the hospitality industry. Uh, let's see the graph that, uh, or, or the screenshot that has come in uh, illustrating that. And you will see in the right hand column there, people can freeze it and look later. Uh, uh, so uh, the, the, it's an alphabetical column of energy suppliers, contract offers, and uh, the right hand column uh, has a string of things like hospitality industry no longer supported, prices disabled, renewal contract only, never quote pubs, bars or takeaways, no longer accepting acquisition for hospitality sector, no longer accepting acquisition for hospitality sector, much of this is repeated, currently disabled, no hospitality for acquisition, only renewals, etc, etc, not taking acquisition business in the hospitality sector, pubs, bars, restaurants, bed and breakfasts, holiday parks, gyms, and restaurants. Uh, the writing continues. 
It just seems that industry is being targeted to fall into demise since the pandemic, and we really should be asking the question, why? Why are all the energy suppliers not taking on business from the hospitality industry? What's the reason? They claim they are too risky to take on. I can't see how businesses in the hospitality sector can continue. It's a double whammy after closures in the pandemic. We've spoken to a number of businesses. This is the write-ins employer and energy broker. We've spoken to a number of businesses who have clarified that they took the £50,000 government loan but have not paid it back. They can't yet, resulting in their credit scores dropping and ultimately affecting their chances of new energy contracts. Uh, It is plausible that this could have been strategically thought out, but for what reason, I do not know. And this is something for the viewers. Can we find out why energy suppliers are negatively targeting the hospitality industry? I have more on energy from other countries, but I'll just hand it briefly back to you, Mike and Brian, to see whether you have any comment on this. Uh, Well, uh, no comment beyond what's been said already it's been pretty it was pretty clear that during the uh, pandemic despite the uh, the claims uh, of you know funding free meals the occasional free meals and so on that basically the hospitality sector was one of the main targets uh, for uh, covid policy well so whether that's viewed uh, within the sort of green new deal type uh, policy area as the, the the hospitality sector is seen as being a a uh, net uh, a, a, a barrier to net zero. I, I don't know, but that seems to be that there's a, a continuation uh, of attack from policy makers on that particular sector in particular. Yeah, I, ju- I just add to that. We're also seeing reports of more and more and more and more pubs going out of business as a, as a key sector within the hospitality industry. My take on this is this is part of the psychological attack on the minds of the people of this nation. You will not be allowed to go out and enjoy yourself and to socialise. I believe this is part a deliberate part of the political attack, and this is part of malicious political applied psychology. That's my personal opinion. Okay, Alex, are we moving on to Switzerland now? We will, because uh, just a moment ago in the chat box, the politics of envy was brought into this, and we shouldn't skirt over that. People talking about those who are on benefits or welfare for our foreign viewers who allegedly are buying horses and new top-of-the-range vehicles. Um, so, but whether or not that's true, it's the envy that's in in, uh, in question here. So on screen at the moment is what looks to all intents and purposes to be a genuine campaign by the federal level of the Swiss government. So it's the Swiss Confederation putting up this advert, which translated says, is your neighbour heating their uh, home or residence to above 19 degrees Celsius? Please tip us off on this number. Uh, I don't suggest that anyone calls and much less may be abusive on that number, but it is a genuine number that a couple of viewers have checked out. And at the bottom, we see it's anonymous and you get a 200 francs or roughly 200 pound or euro reward for the tip off. Um, uh, sorry, Germany, sorry, Alex, just before yeah. we go on to Germany, I just remind everybody, uh, I think it was Patrick on Friday's program was talking about the, the fact that in the United States, uh, in one part of the country, uh, people with uh, uh, smart uh, thermostats had found themselves frozen out and unable to control those smart thermostats. Uh, and so they weren't able to use their air conditioning under cer- certain circumstances. Uh, this seems to be a general uh, direction that we're heading in at the moment. It does seem to be the way that the whole of Europe is going, um, but we'll, we'll, we'll go on to Germany because we have another write-in, uh, not from there, but from somebody who's found out about what's going on uh, because of uh, a contact 
in Ireland, so we'll bring that on. Um, a German lawyer, writes our viewer, who was holidaying in Ireland, said that Germany had already managed to store roughly two thirds of its energy needs for this winter. Now, I haven't found any press on this. So again, viewers are welcome to uh, confirm or deny this. Uh, two thirds of its energy had already been secured by Germany, according to this holidaying lawyer, and that the German government had just signed an agreement with the Norwegian government guaranteeing the supply of enough energy, enough gas to meet the Germans' demands through the winter and into next spring. Um, quite apart from not having seen that covered in official sources, I'm at a loss, as is the write-in, to know how physically German, uh, Germany would be in receipt of Norwegian electricity, much less gas. There don't seem to be the relevant undersea connections, but we stand corrected if anyone can inform us on that. It seems to have been done behind the backs of the public anyway. Okay, well, let's uh, move on to the issue of disinformation. And I want to start off with this article in The Atlantic. Uh, and the headline is, it's time to prepare for a Ukrainian victory, uh, because in Ukraine, uh, the Ukrainians are winning, aren't they? Uh, I believe they are. Yes. So let's uh, bring that back and have a look at some of the text here. Uh, the Russians' original mission has already failed, says this article. Uh, there'll be no, uh, news, no such new era. The Soviet Union will not be revived. And when Russian elites finally realized that Putin's imperial project was not just a failure for Putin personally, but also a moral, political and economic disaster for the country, themselves included, then his claim of to be the legitimate ruler of Russia melts away. When I write that Americans and Europeans need to prepare for a Ukrainian victory, that's what I mean. We must expect that a Ukrainian victory, and certainly a victory in Ukraine's understanding of the term, uh, it also brings about the end of Putin's regime. Uh, the article goes on to say, to be clear, this is not a prediction, it's a warning. Uh, many things about the current Russian political system are strange, and one of the strangest is the total absence of a mechanism for succession. We don't have that problem, do we? Uh, not only do we have no idea who would or could replace Putin, we have no idea who would or could choose that person. In the Soviet Union, there was a Politburo, a group of people that could theoretically make such a decision and, every, and very occasionally did. By contrast, there is no transmission mechanism in Russia. There is no Dauphin. Uh, Putin has refused even to allow Russians to contemplate an alternative to his seedy and corrupt brand of kleptocratic power. Nevertheless, I repeat, it is inconceivable that he can continue to rule at the, uh, if the centerpiece of his claim to, legitimacy, sorry, to legitimacy, his promise to put the Soviet Union back together again, proves not just impossible, but laughable. So I wonder who wrote this tripe? Well, it was none other than uh, an Applebaum. Uh, who's this a staff writer at the Atlantic? So I just wanted to uh, sort of highlight uh, Anne and and what she's into, uh, because of course uh, she came to particular notoriety during the uh, exposure of the Integrity Initiative. She was one of the UK uh, inner core uh, on the Integrity Initiative. So therefore, a lot, um, you know, absolutely pushing a an anti-Russian narrative for many many years. Um, she set up a. a think tank, we might call it, called ARENA, originally at the London School of Economics. We'll come, come on to that in a second. Uh, she set up Democracy Labs. It's now called Democracy Post because it's been rolled into the Washington Post. Um, and uh, I mean, this is just four items. She's also uh, set up the Transitions Forum at the Legatum Institute. So anyway, let's come on to the uh, to ARENA. Uh, this is the ARENA website. And we've, if we look at uh, what they say about themselves based since 2021 at the SNF Agora Institute at John Hop Johns Hopkins University. Uh, Arena's initial projects were conducted at the London School of 
Economics and Political Science, the LSE. Okay, so, uh, but to date, they've conducted research, they say, in Ukraine, Hungary, Italy, Sweden, Russia, and Germany. So let's just have a look at some of that research. Um, so uh, winning the information war, uh, a report, this paper, one of the first comprehensive accounts of the operation of Russian disinformation in Europe. Um, so this is very much about pushing uh, the narrative of Russian disinformation in Europe. I'll just point out, you've mentioned there the Centre for European Policy Analysis, which is a critical one. Yes, and you'll also notice at the end uh, that uh, key takeaways from this report were also covered in an article for the Washington Post authored by Anne Applebaum and Ed Lucas. And of course, Edward Lucas, another uh, core member of Integrity Initiative. Uh, and let's see, Kremlin disinformation campaigns, com computational propaganda in the UK. There's another report from them. Uh, and here's an even better one. Why conspiratorial propaganda works and what we can do about it. And this was the first one they published that was also published in Ukrainian. Uh, not in any other languages, just in English and Ukrainian for some reason. Uh, and their most recent report then, uh, Ukraine at 30, from independence to interdependence. And of course, this is part of the process that we're seeing at the moment because Ukraine is absolutely dependent upon the West now uh, to even exist. Well, I think, I think we've got to say a bit more. Ukraine does not exist anymore, Mike. It, it does not exist as a nation state. It's bankrupt. It's dependent on money, munitions from outside. It's now got very little energy uh, distribution network. Uh, Ukraine is, is, is a vassal state of the European Union and the West. Yes, and we'll just mention in passing uh, that this organization linked to some of the other usual suspects that we talk about from time to time, including uh, Demos and the Institute for Strategic Dialogue. So, uh, Alex, uh, I wonder what your thoughts are on, on the lovely Anne uh, and what she's been doing for the last uh, 20 years or so. Well, going back 30 years this year, she married Radosław Sikorski, uh, who you have mentioned in the past, a, a front bencher in Polish politics for a long time, foreign minister 15-ish uh, years ago. And uh, his consistent policy has been uh, teasing Russia's uh, antagonistic bordering states uh, and bringing them up to the brink and then shirking from supporting them militarily at the last minute. So that, that's what uh, she's, uh, that's a couple they've been up to. Applebaum has also been a great pusher of the Black Book of Communism, which which pushes a particular line that communism is, and I know they, she wouldn't put it this way, but the the impression given is very much that it's something inherently nasty in the in the Russians and their uh, their their stooge nations, rather than something that came out of the West. That's the bottom line. It's not just me pointing this out. It's been Peter Hitchens for a long time, who's loft, often locked horns with Applebaum and her uh, inveterate fellow author Ed Lucas, who made himself Estonia's digital e-citizen number one. Uh, a long history of, of uh, using uh, Russia's bordering countries for certain ends. Um, but let's go north to Sweden here, because Sweden, as we reported a year or so ago, now has a psychological defense agency. They too are interested in telling us about disinformation. How do you spot good disinformation, Mike and Brian, and indeed Debbie, who's still listening in? You do it by noticing that the good, the good disinformation is basically true. Reclaim the Net has reported this. Uh, it's a direct quotation from the head of the agency, Henrik Landerholm, who told the Times of London that good disinformation is actually not false. Good disinformation is basically true and only somewhat tweaked. As Reclaim the Net points out, that can only mean that you have uh, political discernment uh, and discretion uh, in deciding what is labelled disinformation. 
Um, going on to Ukraine again, uh, this has been taken, and you alerted me to this this morning, uh, Mike, from Ukraine's popular, nearly 100,000 subscribers, uh, Telegram channel of the uh, Disinformation Center, which uh, Ukraine's Western allies have gleefully set up for it. The text along the left-hand side says that the Center Against Disinformation uh, has put together a map, you'll see it in a moment, uh, indicating which countries are hottest for uh, pushing RT International, which it describes as uh, Russia's main uh, channel of propaganda. Uh, those who can read the Cyrillic alphabet will see that in the uh, paragraph that begins with the red exclamation mark, the Ukrainian uh, authorities here are continuing this dehumanizing trend of never writing Russia or Russian or Russians with a capital R. So Rossiya there is written with a lowercase Cyrillic letter R. That's a deliberate policy. Uh, and there's there's more blurb down the left-hand side. Towards the bottom, uh, the final paragraph there says that the infographic you're about to see, see uh, also indicates speakers in countries. And I've checked that with Ukrainian natives. What that means there is anyone online. It doesn't mean political persons. Speakers of countries uh, which are taking part in anti-Ukrainian theses, or we might say memes or talking points. So the first still here from what you sent me is the US, which has got seven um, uh, public enemies uh, who have been uh, apparently amplifying RT International. I'll just run through the names to save time, and because people will recognize some of these, it's um, uh, Harland Nixon, Michael uh, Hadson, Daniel McAdams, Neboisha Malich, Daniel Lazar, uh, Philip uh, Giraldi, and Michael Malouf, uh, all very much uh, you know, respectable people in the commentariat. Um, the next in the image here, I've just got a slight delay uh, in advancing the slides, here we are, uh, shows that the US is really only a second-rate concern for the Ukrainians. No, the real bad countries, almost as red as the Russians, that's Britain. So let's see who the offender is from Britain. There is but one of them, actually, and just below a single name given for Norway. Sorry, there's two. But below the single name given for uh, Norway, which is Glenn Deason, uh, you will see the two uh, Russian propagandists, according to the Ukrainian Disinformation Center. They are the respectable and harmless um, risk analyzer and commentator, Adriel Kasonta. Uh, who you'll easily find on Twitter, for example, A-D-R-I-E-L-K-A-S-O-N-T-A, -A, um, whose, whose crime uh, is to have used the talking point that European industry will not survive the winter. And at the very bottom of the page, and they have mistranscribed him as always, it should be John Lochland, but they've transcribed L-A-U-G-H as if it were Lafland. They're calling him an analyst. He's well known. Vanessa Beely's mentioned him. He's based in Paris and has been for many years an expert in the relevant parts of international law. John Lochland's crime, according to the Ukrainians, is having said that Russia and NATO are fighting each other on Ukrainian territory. This is clearly a very sinful thing to be doing. Uh, I have a couple more slides in this segment, but again, back to you. I think Brian in particular might have something to say. Are we going straight on to that? So we'll uh, we'll we'll go ahead and do this bit then. Um, meanwhile, viewers have told me that Britain has its own propaganda issues. Um, the the left-hand uh, document on screen is absolutely new. I don't know how new the right-hand one is because it's undated. They're both from the Government Communication Service. The left-hand one's called Crisis Communication, a behavioral approach by the Government Communication Service's behavioral science team embedded in don't you know it? The Cabinet Office dated just last month. The right-hand one is undated and is called COVID-19 Communications Advisory 
panel report. From the left-hand document, the August crisis communication document, uh, from pages 18 to 22, if people want to look this up, because the show notes will have a link in due course to this, we'll see what uh, hot tips are being given by the government communication service. Uh, general principles for communicating about risk. Uh, freeze and read it all, but uh, it talks about probability estimates. It talks about uh, clever ways of phrasing the same information, such as 8% um, needs to be user-centered explained as eight people out of 100 and use a little jelly bean diagram. Not that jelly beans are mentioned here, but that's how the BBC did it recently. Uh, what else are we seeing in this uh, communication? There's just a slight delay here. There we are. Avoid ambiguity when communicating about evidence. In other words, oversimplify for the Burks in the general public. Use the word no evidence willy-nilly. That's actually being advised case, uh, in, in two bullet points here. And then it says to avoid misunderstanding, focus on promoting the right protective behavior rather than only describing the evidence. Don't leave audiences to draw their own conclusions. Oh, no, that might treat them as adults. Right. So, again, freeze the screen and read the bottom of that if you wish. Um, we go on, there's two more stills. The four E's, which Charles Mallet and others have pointed out, is uh, characterizing British policing uh, in the era of COVID, is actually now at cabinet office level. The strategy of first engage, if that doesn't work, then explain. If that doesn't work, then encourage. And if that doesn't work, then enforce. That is now actually government level. It's not just police who are going to be using the four E's on you. And finally, as an extract from this document, how can we promote compliance with guidance and regulations? Well, clear communications, remind the public of their shared identity, avoid excessively publicizing that some people have their own mind, particularly if they're a small minority, and use in-group leaders to deliver key messages. I'll throw it back to Brian there, and I suspect that Debbie also might have a, a, a tuppence to, to put in here, although I know we're short of time. Well, my response immediately is, uh, of, of course, we're watching the applied psychology agenda, which the British government's been boasting of since 2010. And from 2010 onwards, it was selling that technology, the ability to change the views and thoughts and behaviour of the public. The British government was selling the technology onto other countries. America and Australia were two of the first to buy into it. Um, but effectively, this is the use of very, very cynical, calculated, malicious political psychology on the minds of the nations. And we've now even got psychologists and psychiatrists and psychotherapists um, alarmed because they're real, realizing the, the danger of these techniques. What, what you're demonstrating here is the fact that this whole policy network is not just based around COVID and lockdown policy. This is now a wash throughout the whole of the government system. And in just a moment, I'm going to be talking about Wales. Um, and I think our viewers are going to be astonished at what we're, what we're showing is going on. So this is a psychological attack on people's minds. And I'm going to say to the audience, now you've been alerted, you've got some chance of countering it. But the average member of the public has very little chance of evading this type of abuse by the government because they won't see it coming. And if anybody in the audience thinks I'm too intelligent for this material to catch me, well, you need to do some research because actually as an open-minded, intelligent person, you're more vulnerable to the application of psychology in this way than other people. 
Um, I'll just also add on that little bit about the Ukrainian hit list. The obscenity of, of that, of course, is the fact that the taxpayer in UK is paying for the Ukrainian uh, munitions and ammunition. Our wealth is being poured into Ukraine. Uh, but if you dare challenge that, then the Ukrainians put you on a hit list. This is obscene. And, and they're adding children as well. Yeah. So uh, I think it's uh, Consortium News today has a, an article uh, speaking to a 13-year-old girl that's been added to the Ukrainian uh, hit list uh, for this reason. So uh, go and have a look at that. Yeah. Well, um, I could bring this, I uh, apologise for this, but we'll pop this image on the screen. Um, it's from back in 21, I think, 2021. Um, and the Express headline here was Tony Blair's fury at Prince Charles laid bare. He was very peed off. And um, I'm not sure whether we've uh, we got the little video clip. I did have a clip, King Charles as he really is, because uh, Charles had got very upset um, with a pen as he was doing some signing recently. And this is what caused me to go looking for Prince Charles and his fury. And that ultimately led me to Tony Blair. So a little bit of a convoluted story, but let's have a look at the video clip first. I just had a Is it September 12th? 13th, sir. Oh, God, in the wrong date. 13th? Yes, sir. Alex, an interesting little clip, and we won't, we don't need to dwell on it, but I think this is giving us um, a, a look into the mind of uh, our new king, and I don't think it's 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 a nice look. No, uh, my wife showed me a Dutch media uh, rebroadcast of it, and viewers have said that it's big in Brazil at the moment, and the Dutch had picked up on a subtitle version which said unintelligible uh, during his royal... Uh, there you are, Freudian slip, he's no longer His Royal Highness, His Majesty's ramblings. I think I could make out with my GCHQ transcriber's ears that he was saying, at least he started the phrase, uh, blaming somebody else for having told him it was still the September 12th. So uh, there's a real sense of entitlement there, isn't there? Yes, I think so. Well, anyway, that little clip had led me to Tony Blair and the fact that uh, he said that the prince was very pissed off at one stage. Oh dear, I've said it. And um, that led me to just following up beg your pardon, with Tony Blair. And um, he was speaking at a recent forum called the Bled Str Strategic Forum. This is to do with Slovenia. Uh, let's just have a look at part of this clip and hear what he was saying and how he presented himself. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome the former Prime Minister of Great Britain and Northern Ireland and the Executive Chairman of the Tony Blair Institute for Global Change, Tony Blair. It's great to have you with us Thank here you very much, Ali. Thank at you. the Blood Strategic Forum. Just to be uh, very clear and transparent, uh, because uh, Tony Blair got uh, knighted recently, so my first question to him backstage was, how do I address you? 
I said, is it Sir Tony? Is it? And uh, he just said, call me Tony. So, uh, <laughs> so this is not a lack of respect, quite on the contrary. Delighted to have you with us, uh, Tony, here on stage talking about the very imminent and current challenges of our time. And uh, we have to start, of course, no surprise, with Ukraine. It dominated uh, the first day of the Bled Strategic Forum. It will certainly dominate the second one and many more to come, I I'm afraid. When you were prime minister, Vladimir Putin came into power in 2000. And back then, I looked up some, some quotes of yours and some Western leaders. You were actually quite upbeat and optimistic that here is a Russian leader who gets the West, who is going to be a partner for the West and to the West. What went wrong? <laughs> <laughs> Quite a lot, um, <laughs> but, but before I do that, let me say how delighted I am to be at the forum. And uh, yeah, you, by all means, you call me Tony. If any of you want to see something truly amusing, you can look on the internet and find the picture of me when I got my knighthood, because this is a special knighthood. It's given by the Queen. It's been since 1340 in the UK, and I, by tradition. When you get the knighthood, you have to dress in the same outfit that they had in 1340. <laughs> There's nothing quite so absurd as looking <laughs> at yourself in a picture of 14th century costume. So if you want a good laugh, go and see you that. You know everybody's Googling it right now. Right. <laughs> <laughs> That's what you can do nowadays. Um, so no, when, when I first uh, met Vladimir Putin, at his insistence, we met in St. Petersburg, the western-facing part of, of, of Russia. He was talking about the modernization of the Russian economy. He wanted a strong relationship with the West. I think I was the first European leader, actually, to go in and see him. And, you know, I always say that, is the, that was the first incarnation of, of President Putin that I, I knew. Then. As the years went on, it became increasingly clear that he turned away from economic reform and instead towards a form of nationalism. But that nationalism meant that he really destroyed the democracy within his own country. It's true he had certain foreign adventures, Georgia, Crimea. But in that second incarnation that I, where I knew him, it was within fairly defined limits. And my anxiety, frankly, is that there is a third incarnation, which is um, brutal and based on a, a fantasy, because what has happened in Ukraine is, is not just unacceptable, but it's impossible ever for him to achieve what he wants to achieve. And I thought one of the great things about the conference yesterday, and it came through very strongly, obviously, in, in what Ursula von der Leyen said, is, you know, this act of aggression is shocking, but it has brought Europe together, and Europe will stick together. And by the way, for these purposes, I include Britain as part of Europe. Okay. <laughs> so. Uh, I'm speechless. Brutal. Uh, what else did he say there? Um, based on fantasy. Fantasy. Yeah. Sorry. Um, what was the Iraq War? 
well, of course, it was based on lies. It was fantasy. So I just found that clip so fascinating because, of course, we saw Tony Blair as he is immersed in his own self-importance, the man that took this country to war based on lies. And he's sitting there and he's ripping into uh, Putin. And where I want to go with this is what this event was about and what it's really trying to do. But Alex, I can see you frowning. Uh, a pretty remarkable performance from Blair in unbelievable arrogance. And this is where the power base of political decisions are being made in the world, in these think tank groups, not within the political systems of nation states. Yes, Blair has just offhand described uh, Georgia 2008 as an adventure by Putin. It's well documented and was accepted by Western diplomats, including Heidi Talevini in her written report, that this was uh, Russia protecting people who had its own citizenship in South Ossetia within Georgia from being attacked by the Georgian army. Crimea, I know, has been more dubious. Uh, but there again, there's a so solid case uh, that Crimea seceded from Ukraine validly in international law. There was just too much hemming and hawing there by Blair. And I think even the most neutral analysis of how Putin has evolved over 22 years now in, the, in either the prime ministerial or presidential position would say that he actually deliberately did not go for economic reform first. Yes, he uh, booted out uh, by whatever means he could without assassinating people, the oligarchs who would otherwise have assassinated him and his family, for starters. They all went and took refuge in London. But it's only now that Putin has started to concentrate on the macroeconomic picture for Russia. Of course, he's always been concerned about salaries and public employees and the military. But other than that, it's he's, he's tried to build up national identity before tackling the economy. The criticisms of Putin uh, have largely revolved around him until now, not bothering so much with the economy and leaving it in the hands of Euro-Atlanticists under Blair's tutelage. So that's a reversal of what any criminologist would say, really. OK, thank you for that, Alex. Right. Well, let's move through this quite quickly because we've got a lot to cover in today's news. But here's the Bled Strategic Forum. Since its launch in 2006, it's evolved into a leading international conference in Central and Southeastern uh, Europe and offers a platform to express and contrast uh, opinions uh, with, within modern, on modern society and the future. And I've got a bit here, organisers. Uh, it's a project of the government of the Republic of Slovenia and is organised jointly by the Ministry of Foreign Affairs and the Centre for European Perspective. And uh, part of the talk, which I was able to pick up on this news report, is that the uh, um, foreign minister, Tanja Fajon, here was defending EU sanctions against Russia. And uh, she did acknowledge that things were going to get tough. But this is basically Europe ganging up on Russia. She said sanctions are necessary. We have to say it. It's clear who started the war and who is the aggressor. There's no alternative if we want to preserve peace and stability and, quote, international order. So this is the members of the rules-based international order getting together. Blair is, of course, central to it. And they're now pushing their policies through. Uh, the article went on to say under her name, the EU has shown strong unity when it, it came to imposing sanctions. But six months after the start of the war, there's a debate opening up as people start fearing that the sanctions will start hitting Europe's economy stronger than expected. Um, so uh, a little bit more about the, um, uh, the, the Bled Strategic Forum. 
And what we discover very quickly is they're interested in youth and they're pulling in youth here, young global leaders. Does this sound familiar, Mike? It does. Sounds very common purpose-ish. And uh, here we've got the Hive uh, diagram showing all of the activities of how these young leaders are going to be pulled together in order to produce the future uh, European policy and in particular in the eastern states of Europe. So this is a grooming exercise, in my opinion, where particularly young people, the young uh, hopefuls in the political world, are being groomed into the consensus opinion of what the European Union wants. And uh, the Centre for European Perspective is involved with this. And of course, the first thing you notice is security is important there. We've got the pillars of uh, democracy, which are, uh, takes me back to the formation of the uh, European military that uh, we commented on with the pillars of that particular organisation. But there on the right is youth. And of course, the centre for this, uh, the same thing is happening here. Um, they are pulling in youngsters, meaningful participation, empowerment of girls and women, non-formal education, skills and competencies for life, um, anti-radicalisation, extremism prevention, and all about children and youth in armed conflict. So they want the children. And if you dig deeper in, this, of course, tells you where it's going to go. Strengthening societal resilience and countering foreign perpetrated disinformation. I wonder where this could be heading, Mike, in six Western Balkan countries. So if we look at the contents of this, uh, we see some really interesting things. Amplify divisions, take advantage of vulnerabilities. Russian disinformation strategy in the Western Balkans. So this is a massive, a massive psychological manipulation campaign by the EU and the West. And of course, Tony Blair is at the heart of it. But on the right of the screen, if you just drop down to uh, 20 within the context, uh, within the contents, you've got amplifying discord, uh, disinformation campaigns in North Macedonia. And this is by two writers, possibly, yes, two writers, and uh, they are involved with what's called the Metamorphosis Foundation. Now, I haven't got time to go into that in today's news, but I will, because this takes us through a network of other very dark, devious organisations, all working to manipulate um, public opinion, particularly in Eastern Europe. And of course, the central thread is to hate everything about the Russians and Russia. Mm. Um, well, let's continue with the disinformation theme. Now, uh, we were tipped off this morning that there has been a lot of activity on Twitter around uh, Liz Truss's announcement about fracking moratorium being lifted. Uh, that was announced a few days ago. Uh, and uh, permissions being given or licenses being given for uh, potential fracking activity in the UK. I just wanted to remind everybody, first of all, uh, that if we go back to the Financial Times, I think this is 2019, 2018, sorry, uh, fracking plans spark conservative rebellion threat. Uh, and this was uh, really about the fact that the government at the time wanted to give permitted development rights uh, to fracking companies so they didn't even have to plan, uh, apply for planning permission or get licenses from local authorities in order to, take, to, to start this, uh, this progress. But anyway, as I was looking through the news today uh, over the issue of fracking, uh, I came across this article uh, in the Express 
Millions handed huge energy gold mine as fracking poised to overtake North Sea gas. And they included an embedded uh, video in this from GB News. Uh, and as you can see, the title of that is Fracking Disinformation Coming from Russia, Claims Expert. And uh, so again, we, who is this expert? Well, it's, it's this lady here, Catherine McBride, who's from on the Trade and Agriculture Commission. Uh, and she was basically saying to GB News this, uh, you talk about lobbying from the oil and gas industry, but one of the big lobbyists out there is Russia. Russia used to be the world's biggest gas producer until America started fracking. Uh, she says, uh, and so a lot of the anti-fracking information is disinformation and it's coming from Russia. So where did she get this idea, I wonder? Uh, and Well, it turns out, and she even mentioned it in her, in her although she didn't know the guy's name properly, she mentioned it in her uh, presentation to GB News. Uh, it originally came from this man, Anders Fuld Rasmussen, who's, uh, who was the NATO General Secretary in 2014. And in 2014, he said this, I have met allies who can report that Russia as part of their sophisticated information and disinformation operations, engaged actively with so-called non-governmental organizations, uh, environmental organizations working against shale gas uh, to maintain European dependence on imported Russian gas. And But then when he was uh, asked for some evidence, because in those days, would you believe it, Alex, but in those days, the media did ask people for the evidence to back up their claims. Uh, well, this is what he said. This is my interpretation. Um, so this is where this has come from, and there still is no evidence uh, to support this claim uh, that uh, activists uh, campaigning against fracking in the UK are being funded and or given the information that they need by the Russian government uh, in order to push Russian narratives and Russian disinformation. Uh, but the source of that seems to be one source, um, and it's strangely enough, a NATO source. So I wonder if you've got any thoughts on that. At root, NATO's not supposed to have its own intelligence agencies. Uh, there have been people who clamped onto NATO, the um, uh, Atlantic Council and below them DFR Labs. Patrick Henningsen has done a lot of, done a lot of good research on them. Uh, but ultimately, they rely on member states to produce declassified uh, or downgraded, uh, sanitized, as it's often called, intelligence for NATO as a whole to use, all of its member states. So some intelligence agency or something fronting up as one for a member state or a think tank in Washington or London uh, will have swum into uh, Mr. Rasmussen's ken waving this bit of paper. But of course, he didn't have uh, permission or just didn't feel like disclosing it to the general public. Hmm. Okay, thank you for that, Alex. Well, I'm, I'm going to say that if I um, believed I'd seen everything with the uh, misinformation, disinformation campaign in UK in particular, uh, I haven't seen anything, and I'm going to thank uh, Louise uh, Collins from Liberty Tactics for sending through this particular story. Let's have a look at it. Uh, IWA, how disinformation arrived in Wales and where it's going next. Uh, politics and policy, disinformation, journalism, media, misinformation. And uh, in this uh, particularly unpleasant article uh, is an attack on the uh, mothers in Wales, and uh, we interviewed one of them, Kimberly Isherwood. She was one of the very brave ladies challenging the sexualization of young children in Wales. And uh, now um, the Institute for Wales has taken it upon themselves to write what is essentially a hit piece, but which is incredible in what it says and where it leads. So if we just have a look at the uh, little bit of the text from the article, 
Um, it's, it starts off with this on Saturday, the 24th of July, 2021, a column of anti-lockdown protesters made their way to the home of Wales First Minister Mark Drakeford. This disturbing violation of democratic norms wasn't spontaneous. It wasn't even organized in Wales. It was part of a global movement set in motion by an Islamophobic QAnon conspiracy group based in Germany. Wow. And uh, I haven't been able to check all of the detailed factual evidence to support this, but I think it's looking pretty shaky. Um, but they went on more recently in August of this year, homophobic protests against a drag queen story hour took place outside Cardiff Library, uh, orchestrated by a movement. Um, the misinformation cell has been tracking across the United States since June. This cross-pollinated with the Welsh backlash to the relationships and sex education curriculum where organised groups and links to the far right have mobilised to conflate the Welsh government's guidance on the teaching of non-heteronormative relationships with sexualising endangering children. We can see by their language what these people are because, of course, these people are the very people promoting this perverted uh, type of education and the language gives them away but let's follow it through threats to democracy public health minority groups and climate action in wales don't just come from quote inside the house unquote but now cross-pollinate with bad actors across the globe all these protests are examples of the offline spillover of online disinformation as part of a broader ecosystem of radicalization and are at risk of accelerating into the next decade. Are you impressed with this, Mike? It's impressive. Absolutely, stuff. yes. Uh, okay, well, what can we give you? Let's give you some bullet points from them. Our misinformation cell has identified the ecosystem and uh, there's an outrage ab about that. Uh, disinformation often presents itself in response to unfolding events. So there needs to be a strong intelligence apparatus in Wales for identifying the threats early. Alex, just very quickly, what sort of intelligence apparatus are they building here? Because this seems to be outside of the police and the state in first glance. However, the reality is slightly different. Yes, and it's all second hand because uh, I've just glanced at their Wikipedia entry. Where else would one go first? I know it has its shortcomings, but I see that they used to have a Mid Wales and the North Wales branch office. And of course, the whole point about founding the International, uh, sort of the Institute for Welsh Affairs, was to stop Cardiff domination as much as Westminster domination of their politics. But now they've closed those. They only have the Cardiff Bay headquarters right next to the Senate now. So anything coming in from the grounds, even as close to Cardiff as the valleys where the mothers have been campaigning most strongly, is going to come into them from uh, other people's extraneous material. So they are themselves uh, repurposing uh, or amplifying other people's stuff. They are rehashing. Indeed. Uh, we, need, we need to do a lot more work on this organisation. Let's just add the third little bullet uh, paragraph here in red. Our major political parties have a duty to be the first line of defence, not adopting adversarial narratives, excuse me, <clears throat> for opportunism's sake or political popularity. So they've got to work together. They've got to work together. Mm -hmm. And the political parties are now going to be used as, as an army against the public that voted them in. Um, so here's a bit more about us. Relax, Mike, because they're a think tank, they're a charity, 
and they are independent of government and political parties, apart from where they get funding from, from the government, of course. But leave people to look at that. It's all pretty sickening. Uh, these are some of the labels they've got through our events, campaigns, research, publications and policy work. We'll provide open, inclusive and informed platforms for robust debate, as long as you don't criticise the government, in which case we're going to shut you down. Um, I won't read it all because it's uh, just too disgusting. Have access to spaces for debate, discussion, exploration of ideas. People are going to play their part in shaping a bright future, as long as it's the future the government tells you're going to have. And they're going to see and feel real life benefits from new ideas to help Wales thrive. So there it is, making Wales better. And uh, you can see some of the people supporting them. But this is the key bit, because I went to have a, a look at the misinformation cell, which they're talking about. And um, I was just fascinated. So this is the cell, which has done all the detailed research linking far-right extremism to uh, Welsh mothers trying to protect their children. And it brings us to this, Lynn, misinformation, disinformation, conspiracy theory, when people lose faith in facts, campaigns fall on deaf ears, how we can help you. Have a look at our beliefs, uh, because of course it's all the normal thing. And if you don't know what this lot are doing, I think this image gives us a clue, Mike, yeah. because apparently it's Putin who's behind all of this badass stuff in Wales. And let's look at this video clip of Lynn um, and see what she says. So my name is Shayuni Lynn. I'm CEO and founder of Lynn. Lynn is a behavioral science communications consultancy. We're about understanding, um, implementing and fusing academic scientific approaches into creative communications to achieve real world impact. I started Lynn because there was a gap in the market for a, a, a consultancy that was applying academic behavioral science principles to communications in a very rigorous, authentic manner to deliver real world impact. Behavioral science is nothing more than a deep understanding of human behavior and understanding that when our audiences make decisions, when we make decisions, we make them in very different ways. The vision for Lane is to become a globally recognized behavioral science communications consultancy that can work across developing and emerging markets, that can work across various areas of society to um, apply this different, innovative way of communications. So every, well, think, everywhere you look now, we've got this, this merger, this fusion of behavioral science and, and the disinformation narrative. Absolutely. And this is for the whole of Wales. And this, this uh, young lady is the lady that apparently uh, is able to start building the story that if you are a Welsh mother concerned about the over-sexualization of your young child at school, this woman is going to use her uh, professional ability to, what, hunt you down? Alex, this is, this is incredible because we can now see uh, the whole system, uh, we're getting the lid off the whole system operating in Wales. I understand that Geraint Talvan Davis, who was the BBC Welsh head at the time, founded the Institute for Welsh Affairs to give more voice to Wales. You've ended up with Lynn. You know that is that is that Wales? Llongyfarchiadau. Congratulations. You know that that's Wales on the world stage. Wales now plays with the big boys. It's a small English-speaking jurisdiction, 
punching above its weight by selling the right disinformation message to emerging markets. Yeah, okay. Thank you very much for that, Alex. Okay, let's move on. If you like what the UK column does and you could support us, uh, that'd be very much appreciated. You can do that uh, by heading over to community.ukcolumn.org uh, or you can pick something up at uh, shop.ukcolumn.org. But in any case, do please share our material on the various platforms. Uh, so Alex, uh, just very briefly, uh, Steve Kirch's newsletter. Uh, people who should uh, who, who haven't found Steve Kirsch should. He's actually come from left of centre, so uh, the disinformation crowd will be wrong to taint him uh, in the way that Lynn has just tainted so many people. Uh, he's fallen out with his former mates in the Democrat Party in the USA. This is perhaps his most important blog ever, exclusive colon proof that Israel found serious safety problems with the COVID vaccines, then deliberately covered it up. There's been a media blanket of silence over this. <laughs> But uh, we'll find just one paragraph here saying the Israeli Health Authority knew the vaccines were harming people. Uh, the details are all given here. Uh, the call comes down to a Zoom call between doctors speaking Hebrew, saying, listen, guys, we've been hired by the Israeli Health Ministry. Uh, the subtext not admitted was we are guinea pigs because unlike VAERS and yellow card in Britain and America, we don't have uh, a, a, an adverse effects reporting systems, and we're ahead of the jabbing curve, even ahead of Britain. So we're it, we're the safety mechanism. And in the call, they described how they didn't have boxes for uh, logging neurological or other kinds of uh, persistent effects. They were discussing back pain and neurological problems that persisted for far longer than Pfizer itself had claimed. The Israeli uh, authorities, particularly the health ministry, as Kirsch demonstrates here, knew all about this. And yet they, they didn't make any mention of it in what they published. Uh, there, there are uh, descriptions here of uh, quite a lot of cover up. And uh, Neil Oliver at GB News, who's been picked up by a couple of American uh, news uh, broadcasters on this point as well, has interviewed Israeli doctors about the cover up and naming uh, the individuals at the Israeli Health Ministry, who even in that call, sorry, the doctors working for the Health Ministry said, guys, we're going to have to be clever in how we present this from a medical legal perspective so we don't get sued afterwards for having known that the side effects were far more persistent and in more categories than we had any ability to enter into the form to register them. Yes. Okay. Thank you for that, Alex. Uh, now let's move on to uh, to Ukraine and the war there uh, and the Russia, because Russia seems to have changed tactics. We were talking about this on Monday, the fact that they are now uh, attacking civilian infrastructure, which they very much haven't been doing up, up to this point in their special operation. And the question is, uh, uh, what's going on within Russia and the debate, the political debate within Russia uh, over the special operation in Ukraine. So let's bring uh, uh, Mikhail uh, Shermet on screen. He's uh, fr from the State Duma Security Committee. And he was basically saying that what's required at this point is a full mobilization, transfer to a military footing, including the economy. Uh, and without that, they're not going to achieve proper results. Um, others uh, are saying, well, actually, there's no need for that. Uh, so this is Andrei uh, Klimov, who's a Russian senator, saying basically no to that. Uh, but in the meantime, then there's the question of negotiations and whether there's any possibility of ending uh, the conflict in Ukraine. Um, and Dmitry Peskov saying currently we don't see any negotiating prospects. And we continue stating uh, that the absence, or sorry, the absence of any conditions for such talks is a pretty this is uh, probably a bad translation. I think what he's saying there is that there is no prospect, uh, although the, despite the fact that the Russians are not putting any preconditions on uh, talks, they're not getting anything from the other side. 
uh, Lavrov saying uh, the president that Putin had told meeting participants at a recent uh, uh, conference that we don't uh, deny negotiations. We're not refusing to take part in negotiations. Uh, but those who do should understand that the longer they postpone the process, the more difficult it will be for them to, to negotiate with us. So absolutely being clear that uh, negotiations being stalled by the uh, Ukrainian side and that the longer that stalling takes place, the harder it's going to be. Yeah, um, it's getting into a very dangerous situation and the Russians have been forced into the situation. They had to do something because Ukraine was clearly an extremist country. Uh, it was already involved in a war in the eastern, eastern side of the country. And then it was being weaponized by the West, which brought weapons right up onto uh, Russia's western border. So the Russians had to do something. But while many people in the West will find perhaps this a difficult comment, if you look at the special military operation, it was clearly designed to minimize civilian casualties wherever the fighting was taking place, which is why Russia has not been attacking civilian infrastructure in wider Ukraine. And um, uh, essentially the fighting has been controlled in order to minimize losses on the allied Ukrainian and Russian side. So uh, what has happened, the West has, has clearly prompted Zelensky to attack at whatever cost to his troops, massive losses. That's all been done on the back of Western weapons. Boris Johnson in there in order to, I think, tell Zelensky if he did not attack, he would not get the weapons. And that would ultimately lead to regime change in Ukraine. So Zelensky carries out the attacks within the, uh, the Russian and allied Ukrainian territory. And the result is that Russia is now having to say, well, we've tried to We've tried to fight this battle in, in a way to limit losses on all sides. Uh, we can't do that anymore because uh, basically what we don't do is being used against us. So what are, what are they to do? Uh, mobilize and go to war. If they do, that means Western powers helping Ukraine will also be fully at war with, uh, uh, with Russia. If I understand that correctly, Alex, that seems to be the position that you that Russia's being put in, in into a cleft stick uh, by a belligerent West, which clearly wants to take over the Russian Federation and bring down Putin. Yes, and if people find that too much of a, a foregone conclusion, they should just think for themselves: How could Russia walk away from this with peace and honor at this point? Uh, what would the Western media and behind them the establishment do to leave them alone. There's no real prospect of that happening. You have to admit that to yourself if you go over the opportunities. You know, Russia could withdraw every single troop it had over the border tonight, and there wouldn't be a return to the status quo in diplomacy or military affairs between NATO and Russia. Yeah. Um, uh, now, I just want to put this on screen. This is uh, from Telegram, uh, because in the media in the last couple of days, as, as the Ukrainians have uh, uh, recovered ter territory that was previously held by the Russians and their allies. Uh, this uh, issue of the town of, uh, I can't remember Alex how to pronounce this, is it Izium? Is, that, is yeah. that how you pronounce Izium. it? Yes. Izium. Izium. Uh, and the headlines in the mainstream press saying that the people of Izium delighted to see that the, uh, the change of, of uh, control of these, these regions, that they were being held to ransom by the Russians. And, and it's fantastic to see them 
the Ukrainians taking control once again. Uh, well, in fact, we start to see uh, on social media at least this type of narrative uh, that as the uh, the Ukrainian army uh, moved in, uh, complete lawlessness began. Uh, that the rapes, the murders, uh, the kidnapping of people, the theft of property, and so on, and really rather unpleasant stuff on this. Uh, if you want to freeze the screen, uh, you can read this for yourselves. Um, and I just wanted to make the point, I was speaking to Vanessa earlier uh, about this. This is very much, very similar kind of thing that once again parallels to Syria, because in Aleppo, for example, other places in Syria, uh, when the terrorist groups moved in, the, the so-called uh, armed opposition moved in, uh, very much the same type of story coming out of communities in those uh, towns and cities, um, that the brutality uh, suddenly increased. But in the meantime, in the mainstream press, we saw uh, the headlines uh, saying how appreciative the local communities yeah. were to see these uh, terrorists moving in. So it's exactly the same once again. And I'm just going to suggest that people uh, understand that perhaps what's appearing in the mainstream press isn't necessarily the truth. Uh, but Alex, let's quickly move on because we've got to get to uh, another war that started. <laughs> Yes, there was always going to be some war uh, somewhere on the globe in the week when the Queen had died, and uh, it happens to be Azerbaijan attacking Armenia, this time not attacking the uh, legally disputed exclave of Nagorno-Karabakh, which proclaims itself independent, but attacking the actual territory of Armenia. So Gevorg Virats, with whom I have done several Eastern Approaches podcasts, uh, has written an English language uh, summary of this on Telegram, which I forwarded to my own Telegram group, Eastern Approaches. He writes, at just past midnight on Tuesday, the 13th of September, the Azerbaijani armed forces launched a massive artillery and drone attack on the civilian and military infrastructure of Armenia. Several towns and villages were targeted. The Armenian side opted for defensive action. The fighting continues up to this point. 49 Armenian soldiers were confirmed killed by enemy fire on the first night. The toll is expected to rise. And uh, he goes on to say that Turkey is providing all kinds of military and political aid to Azerbaijan. Israel is supplying lethal weapons, mainly striking drones, but not exclusively. And people will be a bit disappointed perhaps to read this, but I'm afraid it's accurate. He says Russia is acting in breach of all its bilateral and multipartite agreements with Armenia. It's no longer a strategic partner of Armenia when the chips are down. And Gevold writes is aiding the Azeri offensive. There have been reports that Russian peacekeepers have been told by the Azerbaijanis to clear off from their peacekeeping posts if they know what's good for them. However, says Gevorg, Armenia will stand. Our men have put up a hell of a fight. And I am in no doubt that this time the results for Azerbaijan will be very, very unexpected. He says this time because there was a war in 2020. And uh, we have more detail on that in just a moment. But first, another eyewitness report from more viewers. Again, we're not claiming objectivity. This is from uh, viewers in Armenia. They write at exactly the same time Gevorg mentions the Azeris uh, started new attacks against Armenia using artillery, large-scale firearms and drones attacking Armenian positions and are attempting to advance along a broad front you'll see on the map in a moment. Guris is right in the south, Jenrok's much further north. The situation throughout today remains extremely serious and is escalating with many wounded and young soldiers having lost their lives. My cousin, says the viewer, went into hospital this morning to see her doctor, this is in Yerevan, the capital, and was overcome 
by the sight of untold numbers of heavily wounded soldiers. You'll not be reading about this, of course, on social media. There will be no I support Armenia as there was I support Ukraine. She said the doctors had no idea which direction to turn to. Meanwhile, friends of ours who have family living in the attacked areas, that's along the eastern border with Azerbaijan, assure us that the numbers dying are higher than reported and that the Azeris have made more progress into Armenia than is being reported. Uh, this has been picked up among other people uh, by, uh, first of all, sorry, uh, 2020. If you were wondering about the last war, read this, Ashken Arakelian's book, which I edited in English, actually, Sadistic Pleasures, The Silent Crimes of Azerbaijan, which is one of the most shocking things I've ever worked on, uh, how uh, brutally tortured the Armenian prisoners of war were who were kept behind after the ceasefire. Um, we have done some uh, podcasts uh, during the 2020 war over Nagorno-Karabakh. The beginning of that war had a ground situation uh, as shown on the map with uh, basically the whole of Nagorno-Karabakh depicted in red there being under Armenian or Nagorno-Karabakh ethnic Armenian control. This was in October 2020 and by the end of that 44-day uh, war in 2020, uh, Azerbaijan had by various strange means managed to get the southern half of Nagorno-Karabakh and expel the ethnic Ar uh, Armenian uh, residents of it. Of course, they claim justification because uh, the surrounding territory was undisputed Azerbaijani. Uh, this is now on Editor's Choice uh, at the uh, on the homepage of UK Column. And if you listen to this podcast, Gold, Guns, Gold and Gas, you can also find a link through from that page to the beginning situation at the start of the war and find out how much involvement Britain has here. Uh, which is a theme we often see in the Caucasus. as Britain is far more involved than you might think. Um, so this is uh, something that's also been picked up by Money Circus, written by an Englishman in Tbilisi, Georgia, a neighbour of both Azerbaijan and Armenia. Uh, he writes that Azerbaijan is hitting Armenia with Turkish drones. He's not mentioning the Israeli ones, but they're there. And there you can see the towns mentioned by the viewer. Uh, I've been in most of these places. Uh, Gori certainly major city, people apparently uh, sheltering in their basements, uh, Sotk, uh, the town halfway up and even west of there uh, towards the lake, there's been drones shot down. So we don't have much more to go on and no footage as yet, but it's probably going to be casualties in the high hundreds within a few days. And this is de jure Armenian territory. There's no debate as, as to what's going on there. It's a, it's a straightforward attack by a NATO ally. Yeah, it's very sad, isn't it? War, war and more war. And of course, we're not hearing any politicians or indeed royalty, I believe, speaking out to get any of the fighting stopped, uh, which uh, provides opportunity to bring in Debbie Evans. Debbie, thank you for waiting so patiently. Well, of course, if we got wars overseas, many of us would say that we've got wars closer to home. Uh, we've just demonstrated the British government using applied behavioural psychology on its own uh, general public. Uh, but probably there's worse to come as the elites install themselves in, in, in power. So welcome to the news. And uh, what have you got on the Great Royal Reset? Well, as uh, we hear this week that uh, NHS appointments are all cancelled on Monday and as are anyone else's funerals all cancelled on Monday and living in Cornwall, I thought I might just go and look at what the then Prince Charles has been up to that, affect, that may affect all of us. And um, I've called it the Great Royal Reset. And you can see that there's just a, a small little diagram of, of the succession. But then if we move forward, we're seeing something else, uh, terracotta. 
Now, I hadn't heard of terracotta before, and the majority of people that I speak to haven't heard of it either. But it's the Earth Charter, and you can see, see there, there's a great big seal. So what's terracotta all about? So if I, if I go back very quickly, so in 2004, there was an accounting for sustainability project. So this is going back to 2004. And then in 2018, the then Prince Charles, now King Charles, called for accountants to save the world. And as Alex and Brian might remember, when I was giving evidence to the grand jury, I was talking about the big four, which are the big four accountants, KPMG, Deloitte, PricewaterhouseCoopers, and Ernst & Young. And this terracotta is basically, um, it's an earth charter. So it's looking at sustainable market initiatives. It's going to be restoring the land. But I mean, you know, I'm going to throw open to Alex in a minute because obviously we're, people are thinking Magna Carta, Terracotta. How does this actually work? Are we saying that our rights are now being overridden by this new charter that's coming in? And what's it all about? Actually, it's about private-public partnership. But I think you've got a little video clip um, that uh, viewers and listeners might be interested to, to hear. But time is fast running out, and we are rapidly wiping out through mass extinctions many of nature's unique treasure trove of species from which we can develop innovative and sustainable products for the future. Timelines for change must be brought forward if we are to make a transformative shift by the end of the decade and before it is quite literally too late. Over the coming years, my Sustainable Markets Initiative will report on and update the Terracotta regularly in order to reflect the rapid pace of change and continuous progress being achieved around the world. If we consider the legacy of our generation, more than 800 years ago, the Magna Carta inspired a belief in the fundamental rights and liberties of people. As we strive to imagine the next 800 years of human progress, the fundamental rights and value of nature lie at the heart of the Terracotta and represent a step change in our future of industry and future of economy approach. Today must be the decisive moment that we make sustainability the growth story of our time while positioning nature as the engine of our economy to help us succeed and to complement global efforts across public, private and philanthropic sectors, I'm calling on CEOs from around the world to engage and play their part in leading the global transition. To guarantee our future, we have no other choice but to make each day count. And it must start today. So, wow, um, that's pretty dramatic. And, and what I was taking from that, I don't know what uh, you gentlemen think, but um, I'm calling this king a king in a hurry because things seem to be happening 
very, very quickly. Uh, I'm sure Alex has got something to say on that. Because in your blog of yesterday's date, which is at the bottom of the homepage in comments, you have written, Terra Carta ostensibly means either Earth Charter or World Roadmap in what Alex tells me is ungrammatical COD Latin. And you give a link uh, in that section of the blog. And that's quite right. Um, Terra Carta might sound like Magna Carta, but Terra is uh, a noun, not an adjective. So Earth Charter in Latin, and at Prince Charles's level, you would check this out, wouldn't you? I mean, he, he probably personally knows enough Latin, certainly his flunkies do, to get it right. Earth Charter would be Carta Terrae. Terra Carta can only grammatically be translated from Latin as the Earth is a blank sheet. Well, that's... Uh, well, I, I know people. <laughs> Alex, is that what you mean? Uh, yes, yes. Uh, I mean, terra this... means either the people or the world. You know, it's it's quite a, like cosmos in Greek, it's quite a broad term. It could certainly be conceived of as meaning the people, but certainly the land, more particularly, yeah. um, is a piece of paper. You know, but he's, starting he's from scratch. Sorry, Alex, he's stating very clearly what's coming, that the planet is to become more important than the people living upon the planet. He's stating that so clearly. And for people to suggest that now he's king, he's suddenly going to go quiet on all of these uh, um, agendas that he's been pushing in the background. And he's going to sit in the background drinking his gin and tonic with special lemon um, is, is a sheer nonsense. He's going to use his power and privilege as king to drive this agenda uh, forward. And Debbie, I think you're spot on. This is the coalition of the public and private sector on a global scale. It's it's in our faces what's coming. Yeah, 100 percent. I mean, he he says that. And you know, I've I've, I've I don't know if you've got a, a screenshot there that I've captured from the Duchy of Cornwall website, and um, people can freeze the screen mm -hmm. and read about um, what oh. Terra Carta is all about. But this has been going on since 2021, only a year. Terra Carta was formed. Um, but we can see that uh, Commonwealth countries have taken this extremely seriously. People have, are really big companies and uh, the Commonwealth itself has signed up to it. And, and there you can see the Commonwealth Heads of Government meeting 2022. Um, and I've just enlarged that the point, uh, point 10, we commended His Royal Highness, the Prince of Wales for the creation of the Terra Carta for nature, people and planet and recognized its value as a blueprint, a blueprint for public-private collaboration in making markets sustainable for the future. And what's interesting in that what Brian has just said, in that of course he's not going to give this up. Well, no, he's not, because in my opinion, he's shifted it all now to Prince William, because as we'll come into in extra, I'm sure I can give you some some exclusives about what goes on in the Duchy of Cornwall, but could be uh, could this be the arising of King William and how King William is going to make his uh, mark on the planet? Um, I don't know, but when you see who Terra Carta is supported by, um, you, you, you start to think, wow, this really is a, a public-private partnership. And you can see there on the screen on the right-hand side, um, it was commissioned by Deloitte, Ernst Young, KPMG, and PwC, Park, um, PricewaterhouseCooper, who are the big four, the big four accountants. But then if you go deeper 
and you look into the task force members, and I've just highlighted a few because there are so many. I mean, you can see Accenture there, AstraZeneca, we'll come on to AstraZeneca in a minute, but AstraZeneca, a very big uh, name in Terracotta. We've got uh, the Rockefeller Capital Management, we've got Sustainable Healthcare, we've got the Bank of America, we've got Waterorg, um, and then it goes on again to Coots are involved, HSBC, Mars, PepsiCo, Heathrow Airport, GlaxoSmithKline, you know, big pharmaceutical companies. And then if you look again, <laughs> you look even deeper, you can see that they're involved with um, the Royal College of Art. And you think, wow, you know, this gets deeper and deeper and deeper. And, and there, you, there you can see uh, the Royal College of Art and the Prince of Wales and Sir Johnny Ives Terracotta Design Club. So you think, well, what's the design club? But then you see air seeds, well, air seeds are made from food waste that work with nature. Uh, this is again going into the whole regeneration food waste. Then you've got um, Amphitex, which is going to be a textile made from plant-based feedstock and recycled materials. You've got the tyre collective, which is going to keep an eye on how you're driving and how your tyres are wearing. So you'll get a little indication on your steering wheel. Um, then we've got um, Zelp uh, is another one, and you might have seen these before, these horrible masks for cows. Well, they're kind of underneath their chins and they're methane catchers. And then Orbital Bloom, which recycles data, data into responsive and emotionally engaging artworks. And then you've got Shellworks, which works with bacteria to produce material. Now, these are all winners from this... Uh, Terracotta Design Lab, the then Prince of Wales, has formed. So let's go and look at Sir Johnny Ive Terracotta, because that's essentially who he is. And we can see that he's an American industrial product and architectural designer, and he was chief design officer for Apple. And he's been appointed the Chancellor of the Royal College of Arts. So this gets even deeper. When you go and look at another organization called the Value Circle, which quite clearly, and this is what is what's been interesting me most about all of this, is the tie up with AstraZeneca and Big Pharma, because clearly we see the then Prince of Wales, now King, maybe handing over to Prince William. All of this immense public-private partnership. And, um, you know, if we go back and, and look at what Prince Charles then and the King thought about genetic modification, we can see actually that technically he could have refused the COVID vaccine, um, in inverted commas, I call it a gene technology. But um, apparently the heir to the throne is deeply opposed to forms of genetic modification, something the vaccine is reliant on for success. Prince Charles has previously spoken out against genetic modification, describing such tampering as something which belongs to God and God alone. And yet, Prince Charles wants you and the, no, sorry, King Charles, I can't get used to it, King Charles and the Queen Consort want you to go and get your COVID jab. In fact, they want you to go and get it so much that they told everyone to go and get it and then they had it themselves so 
um, you know, we're, we're looking at um, a very unstable future. And what I believe and what uh, King Charles is saying all the time is rapidity at pace quickly. So I believe we're going to see things unfolding very, very quickly. I don't know what your thoughts are, gentlemen. Uh, what was in my head, Debbie, was, of course, you lived down there in Cornwall and Cornwall has a, a particularly special feel about it in that as you move around in Cornwall, you're not exactly moving around in a free state. You are moving around in the, I'm going to call it the fiefdom of, of, um, of previously Prince Charles. And this has been very oppressive to many people. They felt it, they have felt intimidated by the Duchy of Cornwall. They protest, protested when he supported uh, supermarkets, while at the same time preaching that greenfield sites should be preserved. We actually saw protest banners along the sides of roads in Cornwall a few years ago. So Cornwall, to me, seems to be quite an oppressive place for people who fall under the control of the, the Duchy of Cornwall, one billion pound plus empire. Absolutely, 100%. And um, I'm hoping in extra time um, to give you some exclusive information about what goes on in Cornwall and the, the views of many people who have indeed left Cornwall and the Isles of Scilly in fear of the crown. So I'll be able to give you some very interesting statistics and my own personal um, uh, experiences of meeting the uh, now King Charles III and how much I, luck I got with um, the environment. But that's maybe for extra. Okay, thank you very much, Debbie. Okay, Alex, I'm afraid we're out of time, but we do have a couple of uh, final slides here. We do before I, um, perhaps if I'll, I'll defer to Debbie, but in extra time, I may be able to present a segment on the legacy, uh, or I should say the state of the nation at the late Queen's demise, because she isn't personally responsible for the things I'm going to go through. But here, the first of the two, uh, and finally, I have from one of the sunnier US states, I haven't been told which, is whether this was a joke or, or real life, I don't know. But here we have one of the swankier electric vehicles of the moment cruising down an American freeway. And uh, on the back ledge is a either diesel or uh, petrol generator, not what they call it petrol in America, to power the battery. I think there's more than a bit of poetic truth in that. And the second one I will try to advance to now, uh, we're seeing a lot more of this kind of thing on Twitter. Uh, BBC News uh, announced Australia passes major new climate bill. And, and Mr. Aaron Dames has responded, UK column has supplanted BBC World. Thank you, Mr. Dames. Yes, indeed. Uh, that's that's really great. Well, we're we're definitely out of time, so we're going to say to our viewers, thank you very much wherever you are in the world. Um, amazing things to report from the UK column. What we're talking about is real. If you're new to some of the subjects and you don't believe what we're saying, please go and do the research yourself. Check what we say. Uh, we think this is a very important thing for our viewers and listeners to do. And we also want to give a very big thank you to people who are taking up memberships uh, with uh, UK Column. We can only do this. We can only expand and grow in the face of what is clearly going to be increasingly onerous censorship. We can only do that with your financial support. So if you appreciate what we're doing and you want to see us grow, uh, numbers of people taking out those subscriptions would be a big help to us. So thank you very much for that. I'll also say we've had some interesting uh, gifts over the last couple of days, and uh, we will talk about those 
in due course. They're wonderful. Thank you very much for sending them in to us. So extra in a couple of minutes. Indeed. Otherwise, uh, UK column will be back on Friday at one o'clock. See you then. Thank you. Bye bye.